If you would, open with me in your Bibles to Zechariah chapter 9. We have been away from Zechariah for a couple of weeks, and that's actually appropriate. There's been a little bit of a time break, um, but let's kind of remind ourselves of where we've been. In your bulletins, in a handout there, there is a sheet that has kind of the prophetic timeline. It lays out all of the minor prophets kind of in chronological order, and uh, that might help you remember where we are. And then on the other side of that, uh, there's some details about the expanse of time that happened there as the people go into exile. Remember, a lot of those minor prophets are preparing people for the judgment that is coming, but then we come to the last several minor prophets, and they're writing after the people return from Babylon. Uh, Zechariah is one of those writers. He's a contemporary of Haggai. Uh, He begins his prophetic ministry in the late fall of 520 B.C. with kind of that opening exhortation. In February of the following year, 519 B.C., he has that series of eight night visions. We went through those eight visions that happen in a single night that unfold God's prophetic plans for his people and for the world. Uh, We see that uh, symbolic crowning of Joshua, the high priest, Uh, who points the way forward to one who will be both a king and a priest on his throne. And then earlier in December, uh, we went through chapters 8 and 9 that talked about giving acceptable gifts, which of course uh, is appropriate for Christmas time, but more so uh, it was the idea of God considering what is acceptable worship. What would it mean for the people to offer acceptable worship to the Lord? Was it okay that they kept celebrating the fasts that commemorated the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, or should they put those things away? And God answers the question that really needed answering, and that was not, should you keep doing the things? It's what's the heart behind the things. Because God is not ultimately concerned with religious actions. Yes, there are obedient things built into the life of the corporate people of Israel. But those mean nothing without a genuine heart of worship. And God is always, first and foremost, concerned with the heart. And that message came in December of 518 B.C. And now what has been a couple of weeks for us has been nearly 40 years in the actual timeline here. The last four chapters of Zechariah are composed of two oracles, two words that the Lord gives Zechariah, and it is very likely that there's been a long break in the timeline here. These are written near the end of the prophet's life. They are written sometime uh, around 480 B.C., almost 40 years after the last message. And they deal almost exclusively with God's prophetic plans for his people. And today in particular, as we open chapter 9, Uh, We're going to look at the first part of that first oracle, and it's preparing the people to see the work of two kings, and they are two kings that represent two very, very different kingdoms. So let me start reading in chapter 9, verse 1, to set the stage for where we're going. Zechariah chapter 9, beginning in verse 1, this is what God's Word says. The oracle of the word of the Lord is against the land of Hadrach, and Damascus is its resting place. For the Lord has an eye on mankind and all the tribes of Israel, and on Hamath also, which borders it. Tyre and Sidon, though they are very wise, Tyre has built herself a rampart and heaped up silver like dust and fine gold like the mud of the streets. But behold, the Lord will strip her of her possessions and strike her power down on the sea, and she shall be devoured by fire. Let's pray. Lord, as we step into a new year, uh, it is a comfort and a blessing to know uh, that it is not new to you, that you have your hand on all of human history, that nothing happens by accident, nothing happens that is a surprise to you, that nothing happens that is outside of your perfect sovereign control, that you will and work even in the events of individual lives and in the lives of nations to accomplish your will. Lord, in that 
perfect power, you continue to rule and reign over your creation. And so, Lord, we ask uh, that you would open our eyes today so that we might behold wonderful things from your word. Uh, Lord, when we come to passages that we're not familiar with, prophetic passages, words that are difficult to understand, words that we might not be as familiar with, um, maybe it's easier to see our need for you. But, Lord, remind us that we always need you that we never understand Scripture because we are smart enough, because we've read enough, because we've been trained enough. Lord, that understanding what you have written is an act of the Spirit. And so, Lord, we ask that you would open our eyes. And then don't leave us at understanding, but Lord, through the power of your Spirit, help us to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. Help us to live lives of faithful obedience for your glory. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So we come into a new year, and we don't know what is going to happen, but we do know that at some point in this year, it's likely that we'll face difficulty of some kind. Um, many of us are walking through it right now. Many of us have walked through it in this past year, and all of us know that difficulty is coming, and that's not to be pessimistic. It's just a, a part of living in a fallen, sinful world. And the question is, how do you move through difficult times? How do you move through difficult times, even tragic times, when not only can you not see the way out, but that any scenario that you can imagine really only leads to more pain. And the answer is we all have hope in something. We all cling to some kind of hope. That is how we get from one day to the next. There's hope in something. And if the difficulty is with a diagnosis, then maybe our hope is on a better diagnosis. If our difficulty is with our job, maybe our hope is in a promotion or a raise or a better job. If our difficulty is with a person, then maybe our hope is placed in the idea that that person will somehow come to find a change. And of course, those things might happen, but the problem is they might not. Those kind of hopes are always temporary because those kind of hopes are hung on temporary things that involve uh, the will and the actions of other fallen humans. And we know as God's people that there is a better hope available that the hope for God's people, whether that's Israel 400 years before the birth of Christ or whether that's us 2,000 years after his death, isn't placed on circumstances, and it certainly isn't placed on people, but that the hope of God's people is placed on the nature and the character of God himself. And that's as true for us as it was for the original audience, and that's important to remember because these words are written to a people of great promise. If nothing else, as we've gone through the minor prophets, we have seen that Israel bears the glorious weight of some remarkable promises, promises of salvation and redemption and protection and provision and restoration and all of these things. But as they, write, as they read these things, uh, there are people that live with trouble. There are people that live with trouble, with threats from neighbors, and more than that, there are people that live with the threat of sin. They remain a rebellious people who continue to push back against what God has called them to do. And they need a reminder of who God is and what He is going to do. And so today we open up chapter 9, and we're going to hear about two kings. Now, as you read the text, it's not clear that there are two different kings delineated, but as you see God's prophetic word play out in history, it becomes very, very clear that there are two kings, uh, that their kingdoms are incredibly different, but that God's hand is firmly involved in each one. So let's first look at the promised king that is coming, and as we open up chapter 9, chapter 9 opens with a promise of judgment. And before we get into the specifics, remember, these things are written sometime around 480 B.C. And why does that matter? Because what Zechariah is going to write, especially in the first several verses of chapter 9, uh, is going to play out in human history over 100 years after this is written. 
As we read these things, they're written as a preview for what God is going to do. And you and I have the blessing of looking back at the historical record and seeing God uh, perform absolutely faithfully. So by the time that we read this, uh, the threat is no longer from the people of Samaria and the surrounding people that are pushing back against a temple being built or against Jerusalem's walls being rebuilt. Uh, that is decades in the past. By the time Zechariah receives this oracle, the temple has been rebuilt, the walls of Jerusalem are rebuilt, and it's not local enemies that are the problem. Now it is, again, international powers. Now it's threats from Damascus. Now it's threats from uh, the cities where the Philistines have always lived, Gaza, Ashkelon, Ashdod, those places that are now again threatening to push God's people out of their land. And it's those threats that God's going to speak to. Look at verse 1. The oracle of the word of the Lord is against the land of Hadrach, and Damascus is its resting place. That word oracle literally means burden. It's kind of typical of prophetic messages, especially those prophetic messages uh, that deal with judgment. And this oracle, this burden, covers chapters 9, 10, and 11, and it is an oracle, it is a burden of both judgment and salvation. And the places that it talks about, Hadrach's a little bit hard to identify. It's likely a city uh, that gave its name to a surrounding area. Damascus, much more well-known. Damascus is a, a capital city of the Syrian Empire, and you can see it on the map behind me as that goes up. So it's to the north of Israel, but that was kind of an area of constant threat from way, way back into the time of the patriarchs and all the way through the life of Israel as a nation. Uh, and so God says this oracle, this burden is first going to rest on Damascus. And he says, for the Lord has an eye on mankind and on all the tribes of Israel. Now, if you have an NASB or an NIV, that reads a little bit differently in your translation. It says the eyes of all mankind and all Israel are on the Lord. Both of those things are grammatically possible. I actually think the NIV and the NASB capture it a little bit better. Uh, does the Lord have his eye on all mankind? Absolutely. The Bible makes that clear. But in this instance, what we're going to see is that the eyes of mankind are going to witness what is going to happen, and it is going to be unmistakable that it is God who is at work through all of these things. We need to understand a little bit of history and you say, I didn't come here to learn history. I know, but history is so important to what happens in the Bible. Geography is so important to what happens in the Bible. All those subjects that you slept through in school, uh, they're really critical to understand what's going to happen here because if you look at Damascus up there, uh, it actually forms kind of the gateway to something broad that's going to happen. If you remember in your Bible reading back to Daniel when you've gone through that in the past, and there's a king in Daniel named Nebuchadnezzar, and he has a remarkable dream about a giant statue. You remember that from the flannel graphs? Head of gold and the chest of silver, and the belly and thighs of bronze, and the legs of iron, and the feet of iron and clay. And over and over in the book of Daniel, he talks about these kingdoms that are coming, this progression of kingdoms that is going to come through human history. And Babylon is the head of gold, and then you have the Medo-Persian empire that comes next. And that Medo-Persian empire, that Persian empire is what the people are living under. As Zechariah starts his writing, and even now, Cyrus the Great who rules and who allows the people to go back to their land. Darius the king that is the king as Zechariah writes. But we know that that Persian empire is not the final empire that comes. A young man named Alexander comes to power in the area of Greece. And he conquers with remarkable speed. And he sets it as his goal to conquer the known world. And he is remarkably successful even where other empires fail. And if you would look at where Greece is, it would be off to the, well, your left, the left-hand side of the map. He comes over that northern area and he begins to press into the Persian Empire. 
defeating Darius's armies on the plains there, and then he presses into that area of Damascus. And what we're going to see as we read through this follows exactly the progression of Alexander's conquests down the coast in the Mediterranean Sea. Again, this is over a hundred years before he's even born. So, look at what he says in verse 3. He comes from the north. His path of conquest goes along with what Zechariah writes from the land of Damascus in the north. Verse 2, and on Hamath also which borders it, Tyre and Sidon, though they are very wise, Tyre has built herself a rampart and heaped up silver like dust and fine gold like mud in the streets. After Damascus, uh, Alexander turns his attention toward Tyre, which is here on the map. You can see it's a coastal city uh, that had amassed fantastic wealth through trade and through conquering. And uh, you get that picture, uh, gold and silver like dust and mud. That's how rich they were. That's how wealthy they were, that precious metals are, are as common as dust and mud. It's a pretty graphic picture of how fantastically wealthy they were. And not only was Tyre wealthy, Tyre was extremely secure because Tyre was a two-part city. One part of that was the old city, and that is built on the shore of the Mediterranean. Then they built a new city on an island that is about 1,000 yards off the coast. So almost a half mile out, you have this island city that is not only surrounded by water, but is surrounded by walls that are 150 feet high. For some context, that is more than double the height of our little bell tower out there. Surrounded by walls, surrounded by water, and that city had withstood remarkable opposition. Assyria laid siege to the city for five years and could not overthrow it. Nebuchadnezzar laid siege to Tyre for 13 years and could not overthrow the city. That's how secure they were. But look at verse 4. God says, Behold, the Lord will strip her of her possessions and strike down her power on the sea, and she will be devoured by fire. See, when the Greek army under Alexander comes, they face that same problem. City on the shoreline, easy enough to conquer. But now you have a people a half mile out who can just sit there and wait out your army while you run out of supplies and they stay secure. But Alexander has a plan. He takes the ruins of that old city on the shore and he begins throwing them into the ocean. And for a half mile and a length of six feet deep, he creates this man-made causeway out to the city and he conquers it. By the way, that's exactly what Ezekiel would said would happen to that city. You can still see that city, as you can see on that uh, picture to the right there. You can still see that he changed the geography of the area to get out and conquer that. And when Tyre falls, and it does, it's only a matter of time before Alexander continues to march southward. Verse 5. Ashkelon shall see it and be afraid. Gaza too, and shall writhe in anguish. Ekron also, because its hopes are confounded. The king shall perish from Gaza. Ashkelon shall be uninhabited. A mixed people will dwell in Ashdod, and I will cut off the pride of Philistia. See, we've seen those city names before. Those are the primary cities of the Philistines, those ancient enemies of God's people. Even now, lots of those city names are in the news. They have, still have an intense hatred of God's people. It's that area of five cities that was central to the Philistine power. And the prediction is that Alexander is going to move south, or that this king is going to move south and conquer those areas, and they are rightly afraid. They're overcome and they're conquered. Gaza and Ekron fall. There's no longer a regional king in that area. 
This is the last time in human history that those five cities will represent a significant regional power. After Alexander comes, there's no longer a regional king. They are no longer a threat to anybody. They're going to be under the control of the Greeks and then later the Romans, but they are never again a major power. And you can see just through reading the text that God proves that he is absolutely perfectly faithful in the events of human history. But in the middle of a passage on judgment and in the path of conquest of a conquering king, we have a promise of deliverance. That's where we go from this promised king and his promised destruction to a promised deliverance. Look at verse 7. I will take away its blood from its mouth and its abominations from between its teeth. It too shall be a remnant for our God. It shall be like a clan in Judah, and Ekron shall be like the Jebusites. The conquering of those cities came in the 300s BC, but now God pushes forward, and he looks forward, and he says that there's a time coming when those cities will be counted among his people. Imagine that. Places that has always represented rebellion and destruction and nothing but trouble for God's people. And that, that's what they were. They were a constant source of pain and misery and bloodshed and idolatry. They are a physical and spiritual plague to God's people. And God says, there's a time coming when I'm going to call them mine. And that's not unique in the prophets. In Isaiah 19, God said that the time was coming when he would call Egypt his people and Assyria the work of his hands. If you remember back in Zechariah 2, there was a time coming when God said that many nations would join themselves to him and they would be called the Lord's people. So we see the unimaginable, unthinkable mercy of God on display again. He deals with sin. He crushes rebellion, but he calls rebels to himself. That day of the Lord, this constant theme through the prophets of the day of the Lord, has two emphases. One of those is judgment towards sin. The other emphasis is restoration and redemption for the unredeemable. And as he closes with this picture, he says that in that day, those cities are going to be like the clans of Judah, and Ekron will be like the Jebusites. Well, who are the Jebusites? Uh, again, people we're not real familiar with. The Jebusites were the people that inhabited uh, the hill country in and around Jerusalem. Uh, Jerusalem was a Jebusite city until David came and took it. And when he took it, those that weren't conquered or killed in the fighting are kind of absorbed into the people. That temple mount, Zion, where the temple is built, is purchased from a Jebusite. And you see this enfolding into the people of God, a people who were once far away, rebels, and that picture from the time of David is now used to point forward to a time of a greater David when he will rule on his throne from his city. And look at verse 8. Then I will encamp at my house as a guard so that none shall march to and fro. No oppressor shall again march over them, for now I see with my own eyes. That's a fascinating phrase we need to unpack a little. It's easy enough to understand. God says, I'm going to encamp at my city as a guard, that God is going to protect his place and that God is going to protect his people. And if you look back in history, again, we see the preview that that is exactly what happened. Because if you follow that line south from Damascus to Tyre and Sidon down through those uh, Philistine cities, the road then turns up and west and moves toward Jerusalem. Jerusalem should have been absolutely in the path of destruction, but what happened to it? 
Well, there's a Jewish historian by the name of Josephus who writes during the Roman Empire after the death of Christ. So this is several hundred years later. But Josephus uh, tells an account of what happened to Jerusalem during the conquering of Alexander. He says that while Alexander uh, was sieging Tyre, that he sent word to Jerusalem and the high priest and said, send me men and send me supplies while I am sieging Tyre. And the high priest in Jerusalem said, "Uh, thank you, but no, we can't do that uh, because they had said that they would be uh, in submission to, king, to the king of the Persian Empire, and they weren't going to break their vow. Alexander takes that as you think a king would take that, and he is furious, and he says that as soon as he's done with Tyre, he is going to march on and conquer Jerusalem. He wraps up the siege of Tyre in about seven months. Again, five years for Assyria, couldn't conquer it. Thirteen years for Nebuchadnezzar, couldn't conquer it. Less than a year, Alexander is through the city walls. And he turns his attention toward Jerusalem, and uh, when the high priest hears of it, He calls the people to sacrifice and to pray in light of the great danger that's coming. And Josephus says uh, that the high priest had a dream where God told him not to be afraid, but to go out and meet Alexander with all the people. And he said that the people should be dressed in white and that the priests, particularly the high priest, should be dressed in that brilliant blue garment that the law uh, commanded him to be dressed in. And as uh, Josephus tells the story, Alexander approaches the city with his army, and he sees the people dressed in white, and when he sees the high priest, he goes and he bows down in front of him. And when his commanders ask why, Alexander says, I didn't bow myself before the high priest. I bowed myself before the God of that high priest because back in Greece I had a dream, and the God told me that someone dressed like that would be a part of my conquering and that the God of that high priest is the one who would give me the Persian Empire. Now, Josephus is not exactly known for his historical pinpoint accuracy. He writes considerably later than those events happen. Whether those are historically true or not, what is unmistakable is that Jerusalem is never touched by Alexander. He never sieges it. The walls are never breached, the temple is untouched, and he acts very favorably toward the Jewish people. So what's the explanation? Certainly wasn't their army, certainly wasn't their general, it was because the Lord said that he would show favor to them, that he would guard his house and his people. But if you read verse 8, It seems to long for something more, doesn't it? None shall march to and fro. No no oppressor shall again march over them. Alexander might have spared Jerusalem, but Rome didn't, did they? In 70 AD, Rome leaves no stone on another after a rebellion, and the people are again conquered. God sets a preview in history that points forward to a deliverance that is still to come. And so we're left with this prophecy predicted and foreshadowed, but that still waits in anticipation for a time that is well beyond Alexander the Great. And what the people are waiting for is another king. What they are waiting for is not a king from the nations who is going to take pity on them. It is not a king over a massive empire that will simply spare them. What they are waiting for is the king that was promised to them, this greater David, 
who will sit on his throne and rule not only over his people, but over all people. And what we see in the rest of chapter 9 are some of the most well-known prophetic promises that talk about a perfect king who is yet to come. And as we open up the back half of chapter 9, the first thing that we see is what this king is like. Look at verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Uh, Familiar words, words that we've read, that we've heard before, words that we are not used to reading maybe uh, this far away from Easter. Uh, but words that talk about a king that is unlike any other king that has ever been in human history. For one thing, this king is said to be righteous. Behold, your king is coming to you righteous. He's upright. He's holy. He's just. He's not consumed by wickedness. He's not consumed by greed. His reign isn't marked by oppression. He is unlike any other human politician or ruler in human history. Now, Israel's kings were supposed to be righteous, but they all failed. This king is not going to fail. In Isaiah chapter 9, verse 7, God said that of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of his father David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Isaiah promises a king, a righteous king who is coming. 300 years after Isaiah writes, Zechariah says that king is still coming. And not only is he coming as a righteous king, he says he's coming as a saving king. Righteous and having salvation is he. Israel has been in a state of conflict and uncertainty almost from the very beginning. And the very few periods of peace in Israel's history were not only few and far between, but they were tenuous, shakem. They were not secure The coming king brings with him the promise of salvation. Now, if you're reading this and you're a Jew, what kind of salvation are you anticipating? Physical salvation. Saving from your enemies. That's built into the context. And it is absolutely a part of it. But what have we seen again over and over and over through the minor prophets? That Israel's physical salvation is tied to what? Israel's spiritual salvation. There is no physical restoration without a spiritual restoration. This king that is coming is the one who is finally able to accomplish both. This king that is coming actually has the power not only to secure them from their physical enemies, but he actually has the power to redeem them from their greater enemy of sin that leads to death. And finally, we see that this king is humble. Your king is coming to you righteous and having salvation is he but humble. Imagine that perfectly righteous, unimaginably powerful, and yet humble. And that humble is demonstrated in how, and humble, that humility is demonstrated in how he comes to his people. He's humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. See, Alexander doesn't come in humility. Persia doesn't rule in humility. Babylon doesn't rule in humility. Rome doesn't rule in humility. Uh, No king, no politician rules in humility. And when you're a king, you do not come with demonstrations of your humility. Dignitaries do not visit foreign nations with signs and symbols of their humility. When you're a king, you ride the biggest, baddest horse in the herd. You bring things that let people know how wealthy you are, how powerful you are, not this king. There are things that does to humble us. 
In this case, what we have is a king that comes with humility that is absolutely incongruent with who he is. If the king has this kind of power, then he is the only one who has no reason to have any humility. If he has this kind of power, this kind of salvation, this kind of glory that ought to be his, he's the only one that has no reason to come humbly, and yet that is exactly what he does. Humble, riding on a donkey. And over 300 years, 300 years after Alexander dies, the king comes to his people, and he is completely righteous. He always does the will of his father. He is unimaginably powerful, stilling the sea, feeding the thousands. And he comes to his city, Jerusalem, riding on the foal of a donkey, exactly like Zechariah said that he would. And that king brings salvation, not in overthrowing Rome, but in dying on a cross so that he might reconcile his people to a holy God. And the wrath of God is poured out on the king of kings until the work is finished. The life and the ministry of Jesus Christ are anticipated centuries beforehand in the writings of Zechariah the prophet. And the perfect faithfulness of God is on display. And the chapter closes with promises of what this coming king, what this perfect king will do. When he comes, this king brings peace. Look at verse 10. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be cut off. He will speak peace to the nations. He will rule from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. He's going to do away with all those weapons commonly used in war. And it's not only Jerusalem. It's not only uh, the north country of Ephraim. He says he will speak or he will command peace to the nations. That only comes when there's no challenge to your authority. See, one of the results of judgment that comes during this time, during this day of the Lord, is that there is no question about who the ultimate authority is. The nations are going to recognize that there is only one king whose authority is from sea to sea to the ends of the earth, uh, But then he does speak specifically to his covenant people. He says, As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free. They're going to be set free from the waterless pit. And so he says, Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you double. Once again, this is rooted in the particular time of the prophet and then stretches forward. He says, Return home. Remember, there are people that are still living in the place of exile in Babylon, and they're called home, and they're called the prisoners of hope. Uh, Interestingly, it's the prisoners of the hope. It's a specific hope. It's the only time when hope is given the definite article here. It's a particular hope associated with the restoration to the land. Now, there's going to be other exiles who live under hope. They're spared from Alexander, but they won't always be. There are other wicked men who rule over them. After Alexander dies, uh, history tells us that his empire is broken up that there are a series of wicked rulers, men like Antiochus, who comes in and not only oppresses the people but defiles the worship of the temple. If you study that period between the Old and New Testaments, that intertestamental period, it talks about a rise and a revolt of God's uh, people under the Maccabees. Verse 13 says, For I have bent Judah as my bow, I have made Ephraim its arrow. I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and wields you like a warrior's sword. 
There's a time coming when God stirs up his people against the sons of Greece. And again, history plays that out. But once again, that only looks forward to something greater that is coming because that rebellion ultimately falls and fails under the power of Rome. And what you find that is so fascinating is that Daniel writes in the same way that Zechariah does. He points to these things that will happen in human history as stepping stones toward a final fulfillment. This one who is coming that sets up an abomination of desolation who points forward to an ultimate antichrist who does the same. This rebellion up against these people who oppress them pointing forward to an ultimate salvation that the Lord will provide. Because what does he say in verse uh, 14? Then the Lord will appear over them and his arrow will go forth like lightning and the Lord will sound the trumpet and will march forth in the whirlwinds of the south. The Lord of hosts will protect them and they will devour and tread down the sling stones. They will drink and roar as if drunk with wine and be full like a bowl, drenched like the corners of the altar. What he's saying is there's going to come a time when the Lord himself directly intervenes in the defense of his people. And it will be abundantly clear that they do not uh, maintain security because of their army, because of their generals, because of their weapons, because of their budget, because of their status as a nation. There's a time coming when the Lord will directly intervene in the lives of his people. And that's something that he goes on to describe later in the book as we get to that. And on that day... The Lord their God will save them as the flock of his people, like the jewels of a crown, they will shine on his land. There's this picture introduced now that we're going to really open up next week of the idea of a shepherd, that God is set forth as the good shepherd of his people. He calls them his flock, and he's going to set them like jewels of a crown, like something precious and beautiful in that land. How great is his goodness, how great is his beauty. Grain shall make the young men flourish and new wine the young women. There's this time coming when the good shepherd brings his people to peace and plenty and prosperity. A time coming that talks about this ultimate salvation under the king of kings. And that's where we'll kind of conclude for today. And more than anything, this has to impact our view of human history. How do we look at the events that have shaped human history? How do we study what happens as history plays itself out. When you consider uh, the rise and the fall of nations, when you study uh, the world wars, uh, when you look at the development of technology from kind of metalworking to the, princi- to the printing press to the microchip, uh, what do you see? Do you see the determined work of smart people? Do you see uh, the determined work of powerful people? Do we view it through the lens of human power and determination Or do we see the hand of God on display? When we think of ancient Tyre, how do we interpret those events? Alexander builds a bridge, but God ultimately destroys the city. See, human agency is involved, real kings, real soldiers, real cities. But God determined exactly what would happen before Alexander drew his first breath. And the people needed to be reminded of that. They need to be reminded that their God holds all of human history in the palm of his hand. They need to be reminded that the God that they worship at that rebuilt temple is not the God of Jerusalem, but he is the God of the nations. And that he is perfect and righteous and that he won't falter or fail even when they do. And that brings us back to the question that we opened with, how do you move through difficulty, through trial, through tragedy? Where do you find your hope? 
are the events of our lives determined by our strengths, our successes, or our failures? Are the events of our lives determined by our genetics, by our upbringing, by our personalities, by our gifting, by lucky things that we just kind of happen into? Or, or do we actually see our circumstances and situations as being overseen and superintended by the God who makes nations rise and fall? Do we see our lives from the mundane details to the life-changing events all as falling under the plan and the provision of God? The good shepherd who sets our path and then walks with us along that path. Because if he is the God of history, if he can write to the detail what will happen in the course of human events, then surely he's the God over our individual lives as well, able to work out his good and perfect will. So a few things for us to consider. First of all, we are a people who can take God at his word. One of the wonderful things about passages like Zechariah 9 is it reminds us that God knows that there are no accidents, that there are no oversights, but that God knows and understands and sees and plans for what will happen in his creation. And we don't have to wonder what God is like. We know that his plans are good. Unbelievable sometimes. Don't some of the promises of God seem almost unbelievable? That he works all things for good? That he'll finish the good work that he started? Sometimes doesn't it seem really almost impossible that he is going to come back again? Or at the very least, doesn't it seem a long way away? Places like Zechariah 9 remind us that he does exactly what he said he would do. And we don't have to sit here and wonder and try and reinterpret what he means. I know there's all kinds of struggles with how do you interpret prophecy. What did Zechariah 9 say? That the king was coming humble and mounted on a donkey. There were a thousand different ways that Christ demonstrated humility in his ministry. And yet what happens? He actually rides into his city on a donkey. Ezekiel says that Tyre is going to be overthrown by being cast into the ocean. And that is exactly what happens. (laughs) Alexander takes the rubble, throws into the ocean, and builds a bridge out to the city. I'm going to submit to you that we simply have to take God at his word and be reminded that he's been perfectly faithful in the past. Second thing, it's good to be reminded of the power of God because I am easily frightened. Not really by the dark or by scary movies. Bees mostly. Terrified of bees. They're weird. They hurt. But most of the time I'm afraid because I feel out of control. Either I don't know what's coming next or I have no way to stop what's coming next. It's good to be reminded of the power of God who can rise nations and conquer kingdoms, who can raise up kings, give them authority for a time, and use them to accomplish his good and perfect will. And if the power of God is a reality in human history, then the power of God actually has to matter in our individual lives. And ultimately, that brings us to the third thing, is that gives us great hope in the fact that he's coming again. That the fact that the king came exactly as promised is a down payment and a guarantee in the fact that he is coming again. And that is what we celebrate not only in our worship on a regular basis, but particularly on days like today as we approach the Lord's table in communion. 
the reflection on what God has done, the call to examine what God is doing now, and the hope that God will continue to be faithful every day until he comes again. Let's pray. Lord, it is so good to be reminded of your power and your faithfulness, to be reminded that human history does not play out because powerful men and women execute their will, but because the God of all creation works his will in human history. As we approach new years and election cycles and unknowns in our daily lives, Lord, you've freed us not to be fatalistic and assume that there's some unseen hand that will force all things, but to know that there is a God who is good and righteous, who works all things for His glory and for the good of His people, who is at work in human history. So Lord, bring us into this new year with hope and faith, with peace and with confidence. You're worthy of our trust. And Lord, we praise you because you are the great God of our salvation who will one day rule again over your creation. pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. And it is the first Sunday of the month, which means we do get to celebrate that time of communion together. And uh, after a very busy season, it's probably good to take a couple of minutes to reflect. The ushers will come around and they will hand out those communion elements if you weren't able to grab them before service. We're going to give you just a couple of minutes to quiet your heart before the Lord, to reflect, to thank God for what He has done in your life, to thank God for what He is doing in your life, to thank God for His sovereign, perfect hand that holds us and that guides our circumstances and our situations. It's a great time to confess sins that we struggle with, those failures where we don't meet the standards of that high and holy God. It's a good time to rejoice in the forgiveness that's offered through Jesus Christ and His sacrifice on the cross. We'll come back together in a moment and we'll take the bread. Paul writes to the church in Corinth, and he says, For I received from the Lord that what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take the bread together. Let's pray.
Lord, at the right time, you sent the Son into the world to live the life that we were called to but did not, perfectly obedient to the will of the Father. And yet he was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Lord, we worship you for providing the sacrifice for our sin, the perfect Lamb who takes away the sins of the world. Amen. If you want to prepare the cup, Paul goes on to say, in the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's take the cup together. And let's pray. Lord, we will celebrate the blood of the new covenant, blood that was better than bulls and goats, blood that was better than the thousands of offerings offered under the law, those that covered over sin for a time but can never cleanse the conscience of the worshiper. Lord, we praise you for the blood that finally and fully cleanses us of our sin, for the righteousness of Christ that is laid upon us who are sinful, stained, and unworthy to be in your presence. And Lord, we praise you in the light of the fact that, that we do this until you come again, that every time we celebrate with the bread and the cup, it's a reminder that your work in human history is not finished that the King is coming again, that there's a time coming when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess in heaven and on earth and under the earth that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so, Lord, we rejoice in light of and in the hope of that day. And Lord, until you return, make us faithful, faithful in obedience, faithful in worship, faithful in proclaiming the gospel to our friends and our neighbors and anyone who will hear us. And Lord, we pray, come quickly. We long to be in your presence. Amen.